The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial at audible.com slash culture. And by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Ass Over Tea Kettle Edition. It's Wednesday, February 11th, 2015. On today's show, Bob Odenkirk returns as the delectably skeezy Saul Goodman in the Breaking Bad prequel, Better Call Saul. It's on AMC, of course. And then we continue our Oscar countdown with the Best Picture nominee, Whiplash. And finally, a new in air quotes novel from Harper Lee has been announced for July 2015 release. It appears to be a kind of prequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Is this cause for celebration or for consternation that a great and dignified literary outsider is being exploited in her last twilight? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Julia, are you, were you telling me that you're kind of glazed and wonky today? Yeah, I'm, uh, the, the children, the little children have given me their fevered, feveredness and, uh, I've, I'm a glazed weirdo, but I will try to be a articulate and insightful glazed weirdo to match your <laughs> articulation and insight. This should have been the glazed weirdo edition. <laughs> <laughs> but Dana, today you and I are Verve and Pep. Yeah, for once. We, we're bringing the energy, so we'll lift Julia up out of the depths. I love Unthinkable. it. Unthinkable. And, and I should say, of course, you are Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate Magazine. Hey, Dana. Hello. Before we go any further, Dana, you, have, you want to issue a correct here, right? Yes, I have an embarrassing correction. Last week when we were talking about Foxcatcher, I made the assertion that Steve Carell had not been nominated for an Oscar and asked if you were surprised about that. And in fact, Steve Carell was nominated for a Best Actor Oscar. My only excuse is that I'm terrible at Oscar fact retention. <laughs> and and uh, I should have, for, the, for that very reason, checked that fact. So indeed, Steve Carell, although he's not really being discussed as a serious contender, it seems to be between Michael Keaton and Eddie Redmayne at this point. He is, in fact, on the roster. So my apologies to Mr. Carell, who did give a really good performance. Also up top, let's talk about our slat plus. Uh, Julia, what do we have this week? Uh, we're gonna, you know, get a little romantic here today. We're gonna talk about love songs and some of our favorite love songs pegged to the wondrous holiday of Valentine's Day, which descends upon us this weekend. All right, let's dig in. With his cheap suit and flip phone and, on his best day, very situational ethics, Saul Goodman became, over time, a TV creation for the ages. Goodman was, of course, the storefront lawyer to the would-be gangsters Jesse Pinkman and Walter White in the series Breaking Bad. It was a breakout performance from the wonderful actor and comedian Bob Odenkirk. Now he has his own spinoff, Better Call Saul. It premiered to big cable ratings this past Sunday on AMC. So, Julia, I, as I, if I recall, you were a big fan of Breaking Bad. This is a great second bite at the apple. They made a couple of very interesting choices here. They decided to go kind of a little bit deep backstory on Saul Goodman. Back to when he wasn't Saul Goodman at all. What'd you make of it? Well, I will say that Breaking Bad, I think might be like the best television show ever. I don't know. It's definitely up there. Like it's one of those things that after its finale has just crystallized into a really amazingly perfectly executed TV series. Like, it didn't get all flabby and lumpen at the end. It was pretty tight down to the wire. So I have huge admiration for the Breaking Bad team and a mix of admiration and disdain for the notion that their next effort is just going to be like going back to the well in the same world. Like, there's something about it that feels fundamentally derivative. And I know, obviously, there are spinoff shows and, you know, related shows. And Frasier was a great show that spun off of a great show. Like, I get that we've been here before and that it's not new ground. But it's really, it's the same world. It's it's like he has a f- humorously rattle-trappled car. For Walt, it was the Aztec. And for Saul, who, when we meet him, is still James McGill. Did we ever learn in Breaking Bad why... Uh, such a goyish looking man was named was named Saul. I don't think that was the, the name thing was ever addressed, but apparently I was listening to an old interview of Bob Odenkirk from the Breaking Bad days, and he already knew that backstory. So I think Vince Gilligan had already put that backstory in place, even without the second show in mind. Right. And that's sort of the delightful part. So you're in this world. It's so pleasurable. It's like 
slipping back into bed again at the end of the day and there's the comfort of your covers. Like, it's just nice to be back in the hands of these capable TV makers in this rich, interesting version of Albuquerque that they've drafted and to, without spoiling, see a few familiar faces along the way. And, you know, I really enjoyed the show. I thought it was really, really funny and I'm totally going to watch it. And I think Odenkirk is amazing. And I still somehow feel like it's cheap to, I don't know, put so much effort into something so derivative. I think that's maybe not fair, but I did have that nagging feeling. Yeah, it's like Gilligan captured lightning in a bottle with his first show. And anything he does next is going to be compared and probably unfavorably compared. It sort of reminds me of the position Ricky Gervais was in after The Office, right? And uh, and in fact, Ricky Gervais never has done anything, I don't think, as great as The Office and, and maybe never will. But I, don't, I can't begrudge this artist the right to return to this world if he thinks that there's more that he has to say about it. It's funny that a medium supposedly is debased as TV, and I know now we're decades beyond thinking of it as a debased medium, but it is interesting that it produces people, you know, auteurs or authors or whatever you want to call them, creators, showrunners, who have kind of one show in them, you know, that seems to be a model for some novelists and some filmmakers. It's funny that, that this medium also is conducing to that in a way. But I have high hopes for this show. The great thing about Breaking Bad, I thought, and probably everyone did, it was the way in which even very early on in what turned out to be a five, six, seven season arc, you knew what the arc was going to be without also knowing precisely where it would go. You understood that this was about a role reversal between a kind of you know, sad sack authority figure and Jesse Pinkman, one of life's permanent teenagers, and that somehow they were going to flip roles a little bit. But then this even larger story of him becoming from a sad sack to a gangster, you understood that the whole thing was going to be of a kind of magnificent piece. And that I think, Julia, is why it really hangs together in retrospect is, is that it wasn't just factory product producing more and more episodes off into infinity in order to get the syndication money. And um, Better Call Saul, either one of you have any sense, Julia, do you have a sense that it's going to take on that arc? Or is it is it really going to, and not in a bad way, but is it going to presume upon the great good company of Saul Goodman? Well, I mean, I think one thing that we've seen already is we know where Saul Goodman ends up, right? If you've watched Breaking Bad, you know that when he first enters that world, he's worse than and more familiar with the criminal element and its ways than either Walter White or even Jesse Pinkman. I mean, there's Jesse Pinkman's great line, you don't want a criminal lawyer, you want a criminal lawyer, right? And we don't yet have a criminal here in in Jimmy McGill, right? He's not, I think, you know, the arc of the show naturally is how does he become the man we meet when we meet him in Breaking Bad, where he's a pretty bad guy. By the end of the arc, by the end of Breaking Bad, Walter White finds depths to plumb that even Saul Goodman can't descend to. You know, we basically are just kind of getting to know this guy. I mean, Alan Sepinwall, I think, framed it in his review as like, is this just going to be a really satisfying piece of fan service, which is an interestingly dismissive way to put it. And maybe that framing is wrong, because to be honest, Odenkirk is an amazing actor. And the whole thing is great. I know? think it has mm-hmm. great places to go that could have little to do with Walter White's trajectory in Breaking Bad. And in fact, the more closely it echoed that trajectory, the more boring we would find it. You oh, know? absolutely. And by the way, I'm not saying that it in any way should have that same arc. I just meant that the unity of Breaking Bad as a TV show came from your sense that this was about this person emerging as a fearful crime lord. Improbable as it was, it was going to take years to show you how, how such a transformation could happen. And when that became clear over the course of the show, it just became that much more totally satisfying. It's also completely possible that this show will jump time frames, right? I mean, we start off with that black and white cold open of, you know, seeing him sort of post-disappearing, you know, post-having been disappeared. working at a Cinnabon. At a Cinnabon. And and it's possible that we'll jump back and forth and we'll see more, you know, miserable late Cinnabon Saul. Right. Although it is framed as a prequel, like I think the the general impression is that we're going to spend more time in the beginning. And, you know, now that I think about it, although the seeming arc from the first couple episodes is from medium bad man to more bad man, whereas the Walt arc was from powerless nudnik to evil crime lord. There's an interesting psychological history that gets set up with this Jimmy McGill character where he's a man who's been wrestling with his own inner tendency to do things the wrong way his whole life. He's been a little bit of a cheat and a fuck up who's disapproved of by his more successful brother and he really wants to conquer his inner fuck up. He really wants to prove that he can do things the straight way. And so it seems less of a case of a 
kind of numb, sad sack finding the inner power and more like a slippery battle with inner demons that have plagued this guy since the beginning. And and that actually is quite a different dynamic now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. What do we make of the Michael McKeon character, which strikes me as kind of great and promising? Yeah, so Michael McKean plays the brother, Chuck, who's a very successful lawyer who's now beset by some kind of mental, mental illness. illness where he's afraid of the rays of the sun or electromagnetic rays. And so he's become a complete agoraphobic recluse who makes uh, Jimmy ditch his cell phone outside before coming in. Uh, and he seems, I mean, that, that relationship between the two brothers seems like one of the more interesting potential elements of the show. I loved how that subplot did not explain itself. I mean, it really presumed, you know, a lot of um, goodwill and patience on the audience's part. Like, I don't think it's ever even stated that that's his brother necessarily. They have the same last name, but I spent the whole first episode wondering what's the relationship between these two people? What's their history? And presumably, I still don't know. I'm just kind of assuming. That it is. His, I mean, then I started reading in reviews that it was his brother, but I don't think it's ever really said. And Michael McKean's old enough that he could possibly have been his father. I didn't know what their their relationship was supposed to be. But yeah, I, I thought those were those were some great mysterious scenes. And Michael McKean was a wonderful choice for that part. Yeah, I wondered if he might be the dad, too. Although I wasn't sure until I got set straight by those reviews. The other thing that's really fun about watching this character evolve is that he's he can talk, as we know. You know, Saul, the Saul Goodman we know is like an unyielding stream of mellifluous bullshit who's pretty good at talking his way out of jams and sometimes into other ones. And part of the arc here seems to be that we're going to get to see him connect with and learn to use this skill of his. Like he knows he has it. It's part of why he's a lawyer, but he can't quite, um, we see him practicing it. We frequently see him like kind of gearing up to use this skill. And so you see something that we, we see fully arrived in Breaking Bad at its inception, which is is very satisfying. And I think we begin to see him like feeling the oats of his persuasiveness. He gives a very persuasive speech in an unexpected situation to a very deviant and familiar criminal in one episode. I think it's not too much of a spoiler. Yeah, it's kind of the climax of the second episode. Yeah, which is great. And he, he talks a very bad man into doing a less bad thing than he was intending to do successfully. And it he kind of recognizes that that was an amazing achievement. And it gives him the courage, I think, to push his brother a little bit on his agoraphobic weirdness and be like and sort of try to test his own persuasive powers with a more sane and good-hearted person closer to him and yeah. that that moral struggle and that sense of accomplishment and dexterity and potency and trying to figure out what your powers are and how to use them is really appealing yeah, is it? Can we? Uh, we all like the show, uh, and we can move on in a minute. But can we take a second and speculate as to why we love this character? Maybe even a little separate from Odenkirk's kind of amazing performance as Saul, or maybe it's just Odenkirk. But what is it about someone who appears to have almost no moral bearing at all that can also be so utterly captivating? Well, I don't know if he has almost no moral bearing. He wants to be good. He He's trying to do it the right way, right? Yeah. At one point, he gets sick to his stomach and vomits after doing something wrong. I think he's shown as a person who has some sense of, of right and wrong and wants to place himself on the side of right in some way, but who also wants to be you know, successful and well thought of and have some social capital and not have an office that's in the back of a nail salon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're right. He's not morally empty, but he's lubricious, uh, deliciously lubricious. Okay, the show is Better Call Saul. It's on <laughs> Julia, was that derisive? or? Uh, I know, I'm like waiting for you to, to like be writing ad campaigns for cereal or something. <laughs> deliciously lubricious. Uh, anyway, it's on AMC. Check it out. I'm sure you all will. And come and tell us what you think of it. Facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia. What do we have? Our sponsor this week is Audible. We're delighted to have Audible back as a sponsor. Audible, our old friend. Yeah, longtime fave. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash culture, and you can choose from over 180,000 titles. Just download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Dana, you are listening to something great on Audible right now. 
Yes, I am. In fact, on the train here to record, I was listening to this audiobook, and I highly recommend it. This is a book I've been meaning to read forever. Everybody has told me it's great, and I, I finally started listening to it while cleaning my office, and uh, and it's really fantastic. So it's um it's Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz, who was the mm. former book critic for New York Magazine and just moved over to The New Yorker, where she's a staff writer, and who, full disco- disclosure, I know very slightly. I've met her like twice. And uh, and she's a fantastic writer. And this book, Being Wrong, is is everything that everybody said it was when it came out five years ago or so. It's essentially a history of error and how error has played into, you know, the history of human science and psychology and law and sort of the way that being wrong is the only way that humans can feel their way to finding out the truth or discovering anything new. So anyway, she's it's a wonderful intellectual history and nicely read by Mia Barron on Audible, Being Wrong. Oh, terrific. That is a wonderful book. And Catherine is a wonderful writer. I also want to let our listeners know about Audible's Great Listen Guarantee, which means that you, the listener, cannot go wrong. Here's how it works. If you decide that you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book that you aren't happy with for another title anytime. No questions asked. So this is a, like, negative risk offer, basically. Try try something for free, and even if you don't like it, you can get another thing for free. So again, uh, the offer is audiblepodcast.com slash culture. And you can choose from more than 180,000 titles. All right, Steve, what's next? All righty. Whiplash has been nominated in five Oscar categories, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor. It's written and directed by someone named Damien Chazelle. And pardon me if I'm mispronouncing that. Dana, do you have a uh, Damien Chazelle, insight? yeah, I think that's it. Damien Chazelle. It stars uh, Miles Teller as a very young 19-year-old aspiring jazz drummer who enters a super prestigious Manhattan conservatory. There he encounters a drill sergeant-style teacher, mentor, conductor played with great sadistic relish by J.K. Simmons. Let's listen to a clip. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I, I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? I Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference. Yeah, so you get a real sense of the tenor of the film and the, and the key relationship at the heart of it in that clip. And we should note that uh, when he's counting one, two, three, and you hear that sound, that is not a drum sound. That is the sound of Fletcher, the J.K. Simmons character, slapping Miles Teller's character across the face in an effort to teach him proper tempo. So it's definitely... Not a, like, super peachy apples and cupcakes uh, student-teacher relationship. Um, Dana, we should say that this movie was a huge winner at Sundance. Didn't it basically win the grand jury prize there? Um, Yeah, and I was on the jury that gave it the prize. (laughs) So um, thanks for giving that away right up top. But yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm crazy about this film and think it should win the uh, the Best Picture Oscar that it's nominated for, although I would love to see J.K. Simmons win for Best Supporting. But even though I can sort of see all of its flaws and when I hear critical discourse about it, I can see that person's point of view. I just I love the energy and drive and rhythm and originality of this movie. It it makes it feels like a director arriving on the scene to me. And that is exciting. Mm. Julia, what did you think of this film? I was totally wrapped up by it. I thought it was really compelling. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a hot box. Like it's a very, very tight little dance between these two characters. You spend so much of the movie watching people drum, which does not necessarily sound like it's going to be interesting, but it is. I mean, I think in your review, Dana, you noted maybe there's a few too many scenes where, like, blood is gushing from his palms onto the skins of his drum. <laughs> blood on the drums happens so often that it ceases to have value. It's like, the drums are always bloody. <laughs> Everybody's drums are bloody. Isn't that just what drumming is? Um, but, you know, like, it's a really mesmerizing and taught piece of cinema that like if you told me what it if you just described it like it's a lot of jazz drumming just in a row lots of scenes of jazz drumming interrupted by a few conversations and some yelling and then more jazz drumming it does not necessarily seem um like it should be compelling and somehow the rhythm of the way it's put together invests each of those scenes with like power and drive and rhythm and purpose. I really liked it. I was really compelled by it. And I think the question it poses, maybe a little heavy handedly, is still a really interesting one. Like, 
do you have to sacrifice sanity for excellence? Like the the kind of dualism of the movie and the the cat and mouse game between the student and the teacher and the various power plays between them and the thrilling finale, which we won't spoil, seemed slightly um, overblown or not particular. I'm not sure the movie ha- comes to particularly interesting conclusions about those. Well, it comes to very the... confusing conclusions. And we can't really talk about the ending without spoiling it. I almost wish we could do a, a Slate Plus secret segment where we do spoil the ending because I don't understand the ending of this movie, despite my admiration for the way it's put together and the two performances and just the energy of the whole thing. I don't know what the ending is trying to say about the teacher-student relationship in general or this relationship in particular. Do you do you agree, Steve? Didn't, wasn't the end sort of a strange well, punt? Well, a couple things. The first is that excellence in this movie is depicted on a very athletic, competitive model and in a very claustrophobic way, right? So it's very much the, it's both the conservatory movie where you go to this, you know, the young man, young woman in this instance, young man goes to a venerable institution that's somewhat cloistered, uh, a little hermetically sealed off from the rest of the real world, hubbub of the real world, but in which, you know, within which, you know, young people of of true excellence are are challenged and nurtured. Uh, it's it's that crossed with the competition movie where you know uh, you know we have to absolutely kick our own collective asses over a period of weeks or months in order to achieve this level of excellence. We 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 wonder all along whether we're we're capable of and what sacrifices are necessary for that. Neither one of these resonates with me relative to my understanding of music, especially jazz music, I'm not saying that there isn't a strain of this to jazz, especially now that it's become a kind of fine art um, and a kind of chamber music. But, you know, there the it, invocations of the history of jazz in this movie are very selective, right? So Buddy Rich was a great jazz drummer of a very specific kind. He was pyrotechnically probably the greatest jazz drummer, if not one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. Is he highly regarded as a jazz musician? Did he have touch? Did he have rhythm in the deeper sense or, or more meaningful sense? When you listen to Philly Joe Jones play drums on some of the old Miles, Miles Davis quintet, is, is Philly Joe Jones taking these thunderous solos? That seems to me more out of like Moby Dick, you know, the mo- famous Moby Dick drum solo for Led Zeppelin. You know, it's, it's just... it didn't really link up with what my understanding of jazz is in some sense. And so I found the movie a little repellent. I mean, not, and that sounds more negative than it's meant to be. I just didn't find my way in. I also didn't, the movie is built around a scenery chewing performance, right? This is one of those instances where the director said to the actor, presumably said to the actor, this movie is built around how entrancingly horrifying your character is and you do not have to go small here and he didn't and it's in some ways a great performance i'm not sure if i always found it a believable performance he's so fucking over the top as to the message of the movie what i liked about it most was coming at it from the other angle is the boy is very tender and very vulnerable it's maybe a little overdrawn in that his father played by paul riser who i love in everything is is kind of a you know a little bit of a you know, man of failed literary aspirations the mother's abandoned the family when the kid was a baby you know but this kid is potentially a broken kid whose only avenue in his own 19 year old mind towards wellness is triumphal greatness you know i can only tell you from experience i think a lot of young men are saddled with that feeling about their own identity and so i wanted more of that pathos and a little bit less maybe of the scenery chewing but it's a beautifully constructed work in a way with this interestingly ambiguous ending i mean where it comes we won't give anything away but where it comes out on the issue of whether or not a kind of nietzschean sadism of I will break you down to nothing and then rebuild you from that. And from that, you will become something you didn't think you could be, right? That, like, as a model of tutelage, like, it's interesting to think about whether that produces something humanly worthwhile or or not. And um, one thing I want to say very quickly is my, my favorite scene in the movie is he, and this doesn't give anything away either, is he accidentally, the boy accidentally eavesdrops on the mentor figure encountering an old student of his and that old student's daughter. And he sees this wholly other side to it, which suggests that it is in some way a kind of front or an act in order to manipulate young people into becoming something they don't think that they might 
otherwise be. Anyway, so I come out mixed on the movie, admiring, but I bumped up against it more than I thought I was going to. Well, I think you're totally right that the Miles Teller character feels like a real human and that the J.K. Simmons character is basically a monster. I mean, he's sort of playing a a monster character, not a particularly human character. But I I somehow didn't mind that. I don't know why. I think... I mean, I, I kind of disagree that the J.K. Simmons character is a total monster. I think you see that performance aspect of his, his sadism a few times. I mean, he seems like he may be a very sick man. He may be a truly sadistic and brutal person. But you also see several moments of vulnerability when he meets that friend with the child or when he, we won't give away what, but when he gets a call with some bad news from about someone from his past. There's, there's definitely moments that you see something else peek through. But what the movie really is about is that, that dyad, that, you know, super dramatic teacher-student dyad that works itself out in the end to say something about teaching that I hope maybe our listeners will write in and explain to me because I still don't know what it is. <laughs> um, one thing I have to say is, like, basically, jazz music is presented as a technical achievement capable of like linear and competitive ranking. And if you work harder, you'll come in first place instead of second place. And for a movie that's ostensibly about music, it suddenly made the music seem incidental. But I think it questions that structure and makes that structure seem artificial and violent. I mean, it seems like that's part of what the movie's story is about. I think you may be you may be right, Dana. I, I, I mean, there is a lovely moment where he comes across him playing piano in a club. You've never seen the teacher mentor sadist figure play music, and in fact, his he plays the piano with an enormous tenderness. And I mean, there. I'm not saying that there aren't these shades to the movie. I'm trying to account for my forehead bumping up a little bit against its uh, surfaces. No, but. I think you're right that this, in some ways, it feels like a jazz movie that's not about jazz particularly. It suggests a relationship between genius and drive, genius and hard work, as opposed to genius and a gift. Right? Yeah, it's like genius the anti. Just, it's the it's the anti Amadeus. Right. It's instead, you know, it's like Amadeus if Salieri was like really going to get to be Mozart by by like working really 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 hard. Or, but but I think Dana's right that that's certainly the di- that's the understanding and the dynamic between this abusive teacher and his student. But I think the movie does question how far our young hero will get by buying into this ethos. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, the movie is Whiplash. It's obviously gotten a lot of acclaim. And uh, uh, for a small movie, it's done great business. It's nominated for Best Picture. You guys should uh, definitely check it out and then let us know what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. Uh, the Jinx is from filmmaker Andrew Jarecki, and it's his six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information discovered during their seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. And it was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. I'm psyched to check this out. I mean, we saw, we talked about All Good Things, which is Jarecki's fictional account of the same story. And I, for one thing, it's just interesting to see a director attempt a documentary account of something that they've already tackled fictionally. You sort of have a sense of where uh, where his interests lie, maybe. But um, are you guys going to check this out? Oh, I'm, I am all in. This is where, this is the third, you know, data point after the staircase serial and here comes the jinx. Um, I'm, I'm beyond psyched to see it. I well, the mean, fact is the capturing the Freedman's director. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the jinx, the life and deaths of Robert Durst Sundays at eight only on HBO. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. To Kill a Mockingbird was to the civil rights movement, what uncle Tom's cabin was to the civil war. So many people argue a book that provoked the conscience of its overwhelmingly white readership. It made history, and then it became history. It is how many school children first come to know about the civil rights movement. It sold more than 40 million copies, and every year I was amazed to discover this. It outsells a Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye. The book is omnipresent to us, and it is an industry unto itself. A few years ago, it seemed to re-enter public consciousness that its author, Harper Lee, was still alive, possibly in no small part due to the very stylish portrait of her by the actress Catherine Keener in the film Capote. Anyhow, Harper Lee has re-re-entered public consciousness with the news. She has a second novel coming out this summer, Go Set a Watchman. The book was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, but takes place after Scout's a Grown-Up Woman. Um, 
Dana, there are a lot of circumstances that are coming out now surrounding the publication of this book this summer. Her sister, Harper Lee, actually had an older sister who was a lawyer who acted as her protector. She has only recently died. She, Harper Lee herself, suffered a stroke in 2007, from which it seems clear she's never fully recovered. It appears as though the publisher is insisting with uh, sticking to a story by which Harper Lee does affirmatively want this book to be published. Nonetheless, people are speculating that an old woman here might be being preyed upon in ways that are unsavory. What, what do you make of this story so far? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can't get past all the reading that I've done about this on all of my attempts to kind of grasp what actually happened behind the scenes at Harper, which confusingly is the publishing company that's putting the book out, have led to one question, which is, if it's true that Harper Lee is lucid enough to understand that her book has been discovered, to want it to be published, to say that she wants it to be published, and even, we're now hearing in the second round of of, uh, protestations from the lawyer, even to be hurt and humiliated by the implication that she's this old and firm woman who can't approve the publication, then why has she not issued a clear, well-written statement in her own voice, you know, whether it's through a lawyer or dictated or whatever, saying so. It just seems to me that there's this, this this obfuscation of her actual voice in the presentation of this second book that makes the whole thing seem irredeemably fishy. I guess we should stipulate that in the second statement from the publishing house, Harper, they did have what they say are direct quotes from Harper Lee claiming to be, quote, happy as hell about the book coming out. So there was, there is her voice, but it's her voice presented from the publishers who obviously have an interest in presenting her voice. I think you're right, Dana, that like a separate statement directly from her would be clarified. Right. Like a quote, it's, it was a quote embedded within a release from the lawyer. There just, there does seem to be, there clearly is a bubble surrounding her that cannot be penetrated by journalists. And, you know, only the people inside that bubble can know whether she can trust the people that are relaying these messages to the outside world. But there's been an inconsistency and a raggedy kind of Saul Goodman-esque cover-up quality to all of the journalists' questions about the origin of this publication. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, anyone who's interested in the specifics of it should read a great magazine article in New York Magazine. It ran within the last year or so, I think, by Boris Kashka, who's a terrific journalist. And he he did a piece about the kind of the industry that has sprung up around To Kill a Mockingbird and the bubble that surrounds Harper Lee and whether it's protective or exploitative and the kind of sinister, you know, Elizabethan quality palace intrigue that surrounds this one poor old woman is is pretty nauseating to begin with and that it's been added to by exhuming this old manuscript that's been sitting in a safe deposit vault for 50 years. It doesn't seem encouraging. I mean, one can't conclude in any legalistically final way whether or not this represents the actual wishes of this woman. But nonetheless, to me, it's just kind of a to kill a publishing model story because the old publishing model was you publish hundreds of thousands of books at a loss, at a presumed loss, and amidst them you find Great Gatsby, Catcher in the Rye, or To Kill a Mockingbird, which goes on your permanent backlist and from which you make essentially free money into perpetuity that then allows you not only to pay your own salaries, but to go out and publish another 100,000 books in search of the next Harper Lee or J.D. Salinger, right? I mean, my point being, this was not only a business model, but a way of looking at the world that was undone when the publishing houses were bought by corporations that wanted bigger profit margins and to report on a quarterly basis success and failure to Wall Street, which is not a way to manage this business and it's not a way to sustain that business model. The point is you're taking the great American icon of that business model and you're forcing her into the new one, which is blockbuster, you know, pre-hyped blockbuster tentpole quality books, you know, huge publicity ahead of time before the quali- even the quality of the book has been determined based on, you know, people's expectations regarding in this instance Harper Lee, you know, if this turns out to be Max Broad fishing Kafka's work out of the fire against his wishes and publishing it and it is a gift to all humankind to have it, you know, these Harper and these editors will be forgiven as Max Broad has been forgiven. Uh, you know, if, if if it turns out that it's a mediocre book and that this woman was manipulated into publishing it, I hope that that can ties itself to whatever dog is doing this forever. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's hard to separate out here is the decision to publish. And it just is so, feels so obfuscated and unclear and murky that it's hard to really have faith in it. The other creepy factor raising situation was the editor's interview. I think Vulture interviewed the editor of the book who was like, it's my understanding that the book is a prequel. And 
no, nobody's edited it. It's going to be an unedited, you know, archive. It's like <laughs> that was such the, a bizarre interview. When the <laughs> editor is like, I, I'm pretty sure I know whether it's been edited, but I'm not totally sure. Every it's sentence like, was qualified. I mean, seriously, the, the, the meeting, the, the, the tenor of the meeting that must have been had at Harper after that, that interview was released is amusing to imagine. I know. That poor guy. He should never talk to the press again. On the other hand, I think basically I believe that authors' wishes should be completely disregarded with, with their works once they die. Mm-hmm. Um, I think while they're alive, you should respect them. But I basically right, and that, and Well, the Max really, Broad analogy really doesn't hold up, not only because she's alive, but because no, Max I, Broad was Kafka's best friend. This is the woman's I, lawyer. I totally, I, no, I totally get that. And, and Julia, to your point, that's an argument for leaving this thing there unless she has some explicit wish to see it destroyed, which apparently she doesn't because she's kept it somewhere, then publish it in, you know, she's 88. Her sister lived until she was 103. You know, it could be next year. It could be in 20 years. We don't know. But whenever, this will see the light of day. The idea that this is being done now for the sake of readers or for literature, I think, is just preposterous on its face. As to Max Broad, the only thing I, I intend by that is that you know, posterity will judge this book and its publication completely on the merits of the book eventually. Whatever literary gossip and intrigue surrounds it now or for even decades, eventually the judgment will be made. It's a shame. I mean, looked at it from the other way, like it's a shame that this person who published one book, which is regarded as a, a kind of a towering moral achievement, even though it's very much of its time, but it's a single book, a single statement. I mean, let me let me put it another way. There's this amazing moment in Harper Lee's life where she goes from Alabama. She's the daughter of a lawyer who's sort of the model for Atticus Finch. He gives her enough money to support herself for one year in New York City in order to try to make it as a writer. Her, I mean, I still cannot get over the fact that her childhood neighbor is Truman Capote. She and Capote live on very close terms in New York City for that one year while he's making In Cold Blood. Much of this is the subject for the movie Capote, right? She helps him with the research. Meanwhile, she's writing some version of this novel that's forthcoming and and then is told by an editor, no, this really isn't it. I want something maybe more in the direction of what became To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, setting aside even her relationship to this material, there's what appeared to be a pretty conscious choice she made as a young woman when, you know, she spent this kind of archetypal year in New York City as friends with Truman Capote while he was writing In Cold Blood, a book that made him hugely famous, which is what he wanted, and turned him into a kind of a monster. It destroyed their friendship, and she drifted apart from him and made the opposite choice, which was to not have a media self to tend to, a media persona, to just not be alive in the world of the, of, of the media, for which the media then punishes someone, as it did J.D. Salinger, by calling them a recluse and giving them a mystique that then forces young people to go hunt them down in a stalker-like fashion. It's all the more unseemly, I think, to drag her into the limelight, given how important that choice appears to have been for her. All right. Well, it seems like we all basically agree that Harper, the publishing house, has not done enough to establish that Harper, the woman, uh, wants this book to be published and we're not psyched about his publication. But I'm curious about two more general questions. Number one is, do you agree? I mean, there's, you know, Ron Rosenbaum has written wonderfully for Slate and other outlets about um, uh, Nabokov manuscript that it lies in a vault somewhere that Nabokov wanted his wife to burn, but she didn't and what should happen to it. And I think Ron has reversed himself three or four times in his thinking on the subject in a wonderfully uh, Rosenbaumian fashion. But there, there are questions like this that pertain to the estates of authors who have died. So I'm curious, generally, do you agree that once the author is dead, we should just see the work and think of it all as material for history or just the authorial wish about what to share and publish extend beyond their death? And then also, um, are you guys like excited to read? The, if stipulated that this book is the, the true work of the young Harper Lee and she you know, she does want us to see it in some way or somehow we read it in 20 years through less murky circumstances, like, are you stoked on reading more? Sure. I mean, even if it's even if, as I suspect, it sort of feels like juvenilia or like a sketch for To Kill a Mockingbird, that would be interesting to read in the way that looking at Rembrandt's sketches for his paintings would be interesting. I mean, it can be worth reading without being as great a novel as To Kill a Mockingbird. 
What about I mean, you, Steve? I mean, I, I have stronger feelings about the first one, which is that, you know, God gave writers fireplaces for a reason. If you don't, and delete buttons uh, uh, since the advent of the computer, if you really don't want something to ever see the light of day, there are ways to destroy it forever. Why? There almost has to be a kind of secret, perverse, Nabokovian wish fulfillment going on in just keeping it extant in some form. You know, you kind of want someone to come with spade and dig it up and, and show it to the world. If you really don't, you can destroy it. There's there's no cause to keep it. I think that the final judge in these matters is completely is, is posterity, which beyond a certain point just doesn't really care how it saw the light of day. If it turns out that something is a you know, kind of unconquerable part of the, you know, human experience or becomes that no one cares about the origin its origins right and i guess at this point whatever the release circumstances of this book it will already be received as like a historical document that could help us to understand harper lee and her work it does not seem like it's going to be understood as a piece of literature if it were being released as a piece of literature it would get edited and you know have a like it seems like it's being released even in the current circumstances more as an appendix to help you grok the work obviously an appendix that they expect will make a buttload of money but still yeah an well, appendix with, the like... fir- with the first printing of two million i mean they're not selling this thing for 35 a pop to america's university yeah libraries. it's not like a scholarly <laughs> annotated i mean i don't know i guess <laughs> exactly I, it, to me it seems like they're deliberately blurring the distinction between you know is it juvenilia is it scholarly is it a bestseller is, is it, it going to be read by novel right and just to sort of get the maximum uh, number of eyeballs on yes, the page. okay okay but we all agree that they seem scummy let's let's avoid them like i do i think fundamentally i'm with you steve like basically if if you didn't burn it then let's have it but you would read it differently you wouldn't read it you know you don't read the pale king as like david foster wallace's pure and surest vision executed on the page and Mm -hmm. should this nabokov manuscript ever emerge you wouldn't put it alongside the shelf with pale fire but you would sort of say huh here's something else that was issued from his pen that he did not see fit to to give us as a piece of literature and you are aware of all that as you as you try and engage with the work. I think actually the digital question, Steve, is totally fascinating because I think in digital archives now, there are ways of extracting stuff that people think they've deleted. Like I think the ethical questions around what digital archivists should do with authors' mm-hmm. works get really complicated and fascinating. I assume yeah. that is not the case here. But I, I in some ways wonder... I guess I fundamentally would be curious to see this work and would think of it as ancillary material, even if it's not, um, you know, being issued in chapbook form or with chapbook sales expectations. But um, I do think that the manner in which they're releasing it does raise fundamental questions about whose work is it really and, you know, kind of root questions that, that will always stay in the legitimacy of it. And I'm not sure that I even totally agree that it should just be open season on everything somebody wrote after they're dead. It seems like their estate should have some power to control that we can't just go in and find, you know, the index cards that so-and-so scribbled on before putting together some great novel and try to publish it as if it were in itself a literary work. Hmm. You know, this is funny. I share a housekeeper with John Ashbery. Mm-hmm. And uh, she comes in with these wonderful... <laughs> the beginning sto- of a poem in itself. <laughs> That's like one of the greatest sentences you've ever uttered, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. And what's amazing is she says it's the hardest house in the world to clean because you have no idea what's a scrap of paper that ought to be thrown into the dustbin and what is for you know posterity. Like Because apparently there's an ongoing project to preserve in an ongoing way, all of Ashbury's little scribblings and archive them and NYU is doing it. And so she says, it's just like this impossible moral aesthetic slalom while she's just, <laughs> you know, she's just trying to bank a few bucks. She's Ashbury's first editor. Actually, Harper Lee needs this, this housekeeper to come and go through her go set a watchman since apparently Harper's not going to do it. Exactly. The, the first draft of literary history and none of the soap scum around the uh, edge of your sink. All right. The book is uh, supposedly going to be called Go Set a Watchman. It's due for July 2015. Uh, I'll hive mind this one. Are there other examples besides Max Broad saving Kafka's work against his, I think, explicit wishes to have them destroyed? Are there other examples of works that authors wanted to never see the light of day that have gone on to become you know, regarded as like totemic masterpieces. I can't think of any more off the top of my head that I'm I'm probably missing something. Anyway, come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now's the moment in our show where we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
For my endorsement, I'm going to sort of um, throw a bone to non-Slate Plus members having to do with the Slate Plus segment we're about to record about love songs and Valentine's Day, which is that I'm going to endorse an entire album of really, really beautiful love songs that, Steve, I just we were just discussing this on Facebook the other day, and you apparently are not excited about this, but Dylan Sings Sinatra, this new Shadows in the Night album, is beautiful. <laughs> I did not say I was not excited. Well, in my to my mind, this is one of the best things Dylan has done in a long time, and I'm not someone who necessarily embraces every you know novelty album that Dylan puts out or weird artistic branch that he he, he throws out to the world. But the songs that he's chosen from it's not really even Sinatra's songbook; they're just songs from sort of the great American standard songbook. But all of them are ones that at some time or other were sung by Sinatra. Not the big ones you associate with him. No My Way and no New York, New York. There's not any sort of triumphalism or it's not really the rakish Sinatra that he chooses. It's really the Sinatra of uh, The Wee Small Hours of the Morning, which is this beautiful album Sinatra made after his breakup with Ava Gardner. That's just this heartbroken, raw, you know, just these these songs of, of longing and despair. A few of those are on there. And songs with that general tone are on there. But there's also some very witty choices and some very witty deliveries. And this very, very spare instrumentation with slide guitar, almost like a, a country arrangement of some of these songs. And I just think the album's gorgeous. I've only heard it a couple times through so far, but I think it's going to be become a winter staple. Yeah, no, I'm fascinated to hear. I've, I've listened to a couple of cuts. I can't wait to hear more. Did you see the um, speech that he gave at that... Um, uh, at the Music Cares Award that he got? Yes, in fact, that was going to be my ancillary endorsement. So I'll throw that in too. You should also, while listening to the album or downloading it, go and read the, uh, the half-hour-long speech that he made on accepting this award from this, I think, charity foundation called Music Cares. Did you read that whole speech, Steve? It's quite something. I did. I had very mixed response to it, but that's a subject for another Oh, day. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's impossible not to. It's this strange combination of sort of Kanye-esque paranoia about, you know, all of yeah. the people who are trying to thieve, not respect his art or, or steal his songs, whatever. And best of all, just that he sort of weaves in all this music history and essentially talks about the genealogy of folk song that led to, to various moments in his own songwriting. It's it's fascinating to read whether or not you come out of it with a, with a good impression of Bob Dylan. Yeah, totally agree. Julia, what do you have? I'm going to recommend a book that I actually name dropped a couple weeks ago. Uh, while I was getting excoriated by Steve for the lameness of my uh, white balsamic vinegar endorsement. But I'm a little further into the book now than I was then, and it's so good. Uh, the book is DePaulo's Guide to the Essential Foods of Italy, A Hundred Years of Wisdom and Stories from Behind the Counter. So DePaulo's, for those of you who don't know, is just a wonderful Italian import shop in the heart of Little Italy in New York. It's at the corner of Mott and Grand Streets. And you go in and you take a number, and there's always like an hour-long wait, and then when they painstakingly unwrap huge hunks of meat from Italy and painstakingly slice them into teeny, teeny thin slices and they give you a little and they give you some for their kids and they give some to the lady standing next to you and then they carefully wrap it up. It takes like a thousand years to buy anything at DiPaolo's, but it's worth it because everything there is so delicious. But Lou DiPaolo, who's the scion of the the uh, family, has written a book basically about the history of the store and about what they've learned over the years about all of the different delicious things that they import, some with traditions going back centuries, if not more, some, you know, newer and more novel products. But he's a wonderful writer. I mean, he's just it's just a wonderful portrait of New York and its evolution and how in, you know, just 130, 140 years, the changing waves of immigration have changed the face of the city and what it means to be sort of a heritage holdout in a in a neighborhood that's changed so many times and become essentially Chinatown and uh, then is now being kind of gentrified and the, the Chinatown outposts are, are getting squeezed out by the boutiques and the juice shops and whatever else. And I'm sure there'll be waves after that. But it's basically a fascinating meditation on like history and cultural change in the guise of a food guide. And it's a just beautifully written, totally mesmerizing book that will make you want to like buy spec and sample the rare cheeses of northern Italy that you've never heard of before as well. So uh, the book again is called DiPaolo's Guide to the Essential Foods of Italy. And you should buy it. And also, if you're in New York, you should definitely, definitely go to DiPaolo's. The hint is to go super early. If you go at like 8 a.m. on a weekend, you'll, you, you won't have to deal with the line. Wow, sounds amazing. Um, all right, I have two uh, endorsements this week. The first is uh, I threw it out there to the listenership of the show uh, that my daughter was into anime and looking for titles. And I got this very generous flood of information back that was great and actionable. And my daughter has been devouring some of these shows. They um, She settled on her two favorites, which are Attack on Titan 
and uh, which she and I watched together, which I thought was kind of amazing. And then, uh, but then the new one that we're watching, which is so fucking dark. I mean, Death Note, I don't know if, yeah, I'm very curious to hear who out there has watched Death Note. It's kind of a work of, it's certainly a work of popular art, um, as I think Attack on Titan was, but it's just so, it is so beyond the freaking looking glass. It's really, really, really good. It's amazing to me how good the, this material is. I'm psyched. So Death Note is definitely one of my endorsements. The other is um, Andrew O'Hagan. He's a Scottish writer whose uh, work appears frequently in the London Review of Books, among other places. He's also, I think, a contributing writer for the T Magazine over at the New York Times. Everything he writes is good. He's written some novels that are wonderful. He's got one, I think, coming out called The Illuminations quite soon. I haven't looked at it yet. Uh, but he can write about anything. He, he wrote this. There's a piece he wrote about Fifty Shades of Grey when it came out that was just freaking hilarious in London Review Books. We'll link to it. But he just published something in The Guardian called um, I'm in Love with Poetry. And it's just so unbelievably good because it's not only about his love of poems, but it's the fact that he knew Seamus Haney and uh, Carl Miller when both were alive. It's about the fact that they're both now gone and what that means to him and what it meant as a young man to go from Glasgow, where he's apparently from, by bus to London, the city that's the literary capital, you know, both the literary capital of where he's from and yet a foreign city. And it's sort of about what that means to him as a Scottish man. And he says, you know, as I came to London with a volume of Scottish verse and an essay I'd written about Wallace Stevens in the, I think, British Museum, I found a room filled with glass cabinets. They contained manuscript pages by well-known writers. And I couldn't get over them, these wonder boxes, one of them showing Keats's Lamia, the other the inkings of Philip Larkin. I'll only speak about dead poets here, not because death becomes a poet, but because the greatness of newer poets is a magical course to me, and I won't throw out the bairns with the memorial bathwater. Anyway, it's just a fucking amazing piece of writing. He's a really he's a writer I truly, truly, truly admire. Uh, anyway, it's Andrew O'Hagan. I'm probably mispronouncing that, probably O'Hagan, but it's uh, it's in the um, it's in the Guardian, and we'll put a link to it. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. I'm with you, man. O'Hagan is the bomb. Anyhow, thank you very much, Steve. Sorry, I failed to thank you because I was O'Haganing. That's how good he is. <laughs> he is. He's so good. He obliterates me. All right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. The executive producer is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm sentimental so I walk in the rain I've got some habits Even I can't explain Could start for the corner Turn up in speed Why oh, try to change me 